Many of you recognise this story from the 1st of January, the year 2000. The little village of Ashurst Wood in Sussex in England declared itself to be an independent state from the United Kingdom government and taxation. The People's Republic of Ashurst Wood Nation State, or Prawns for short, wrote to the Queen and to Tony Blair to declare their independence from the nation. They drafted their own constitution, organised checkpoints on the road in and out of East Grinstead, with a retired army colonel overseeing the defences. They were issuing passports and visas to everyone who came in and out. And the colonel who stood at the gate became known as the Chief Prawn. But eventually this rather amusing rebellion collapsed as they couldn't issue enough visas for the milkmen and the postmen to get through. Their independence from what they described as the disunited kingdom was an historical gesture that rooted back to the time, if any of you know your history, to King Ethelred, who took shelter in the village during an illness that laid him low. And as part of his payment and kindness to the villagers and local physicians, he declared that that village would be free from taxes forever. And if truth be told, how we love to set up on our own as well. We like to set the limits of our own lives. We might call ourselves prawns, but we sometimes think that we hold our own health, our own breath, our business, our lives, our times, our families in our own hands. We draw, as it were, a little border around our lives and say, this is mine. And if there is a God, well, he can take that bit. That's his. We like to declare our own independence, our personal freedom from anyone or anything or anywhere telling us what we should or shouldn't do. None of us as sinful human beings take direction easily. When was the last time you fell out with someone in the car because you took a wrong turn? All of us have a certain dislike of authority. Everyone from preachers to politicians, principals to parking wardens, none of us like authority. Since that fall, that is part of our human nature. And that is rooted in our history, humanity's history, in fact, seeking to declare independence from God and any rule over us. We like to do things in our own way. But as we come to this next simple three-word line of the Lord's Prayer this morning, the one thing we cannot escape in the declaration, your kingdom come, is that we are not Lord of our own lives. First of all, will you notice with me this morning that God is King. God is King. When we pray the Lord's Prayer to our Father in heaven, we are praying to a King. God has always been king. He is a king who holds the whole world in his hands, for he created it. He's the king who directs every detail of history. He effortlessly holds the smallest bird and the farthest planet in his mighty, majestic hands. God is king. Kings rule. Kings direct. Kings order. And things happen. The winds, the waves, this world is at his beck and call because God is king. The sun and the moon are simply servants of his, elements that he has put in place to follow the daily course that he has set. Kings hold power, kings lead, and people should follow. So when we pray, your kingdom come, we acknowledge that God alone is king. 
Now, this kind of statement that God alone is king might come as a shock to many. Because the reality is, in our day-to-day lives, we all tick along quite happily, often forgetting him. As David Robertson reminded us the other Saturday morning in Union Road, we so often live as what we call functional atheists. We maybe don't deny that there is a God, but we often live life as if he has no authority over us. Maybe we don't mean to sideline or shun or ignore God, but we do so when we live our lives with minimal reliance or reference or expectation of what he does and indeed the authority that he holds over us. Just like the Ashurst Wood Nation state, any rebellion against God is very quickly doomed. But it's far more serious consequences than simply not getting a pint of milk or your daily post because we know that the Bible tells us so clearly that if we continue to rebel against God, the king of all the earth, the one who created us, and reject his gospel of peace that he sets before us and the offer of friendship through his son, we are choosing an eternity in hell. And no one's laughing there. God is king. Whether we like it or not, and it's to him we must relate It's to him that we've got to give an account of our lives and respond to. And he's not a king who's going to be replaced or a king who's going to be deposed or demoted or defeated any time. He's it. Well, we either live by his commands or ultimately one day we face his punishment. We either serve him or we make ourselves king. For that is what sin ultimately is, making ourselves king In our own lives. It's putting ourselves at the center of our world. Making ourselves God of all we see and do. Without referring to him. See this is the cause of all our human problems. Every human problem stems from the fact we want to make ourselves king. Since we were created to serve him. When we serve other things. Including ourselves in God's place. All spiritual and psychological and cultural and even material problems will come upon us. God is king. And when we pray this prayer, your kingdom come, it reminds us that this world belongs to him and our God reigns. God is king. But the second thing we want to notice this morning is Jesus is God's king. Now to some that might sound like a very similar statement to the first Is that not the case of overlap or confusion, David, you might say this morning? Well, let me explain for a moment. For centuries, the people of God in the Old Testament had longed for a king. They had sought a kingdom, a person and a place who would rule over them, a place they could call their own. From the tranquility and peace in the Garden of Eden, right from that moment where God's people had a place And related to that kingly person, God himself, there came sin and brokenness into our world. From that moment on, there were always hints. There were shadows. There, There was excitement when God raised people up to save and lead. And they got settled in a place and began to prosper. But as soon as they did that, sin kicked in and they went into that vicious cycle all over again. God sent a flood to wipe the world king clean. He scattered the people at Babel. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, Moses, all of them brought little glimmers of hope to what God could do and the kind of person he was and what he would do to save. But through their faults and their feelings and their forgetfulness, the people 
still long for a king, someone who would rule over them. They yearn for a leader with integrity and honesty and openness, one who would protect and provide and secure and save. And then the kings did come, didn't they? Saul, what a disaster. David secured the borders. David brought peace to Israel with military victory. Was he the person the people thought? Jerusalem grew, the nation flourished. And then David deceived and sinned and the people doubted again. King after king after king dashed the expectations. Some were very good, others were terribly bad. The Old Testament is a roller coaster of great faith and gruesome failure. Then Israel and Judah were taken captive. It seemed like everything was over. God's people were captured. God's place, Jerusalem, was ruined. The walls were broken down. The dreams were shattered. But into the middle of that, we hear the words that we read this morning in Isaiah 40, verses 9 to 11. Do you see them there if you've got your Bible open? Isaiah 40, verse 9. Here is your God. See the sovereign Lord comes with power. He tends his flock like a shepherd. He gathers the lambs in his arms and he carries them close to his heart. You see, the prophets suddenly raise our hopes again. This king they describe will be utterly different. He will have a fabulous kingdom and he will be an amazing king. But where is he, they ask? Where on earth is God's kingdom? Where is this so-called king? And one day the silence is broken. As John the Baptist, the voice of one crying in the desert as Isaiah prophesied, laughed at by many, but listened to his words, John the Baptist's first words, prepare for the coming king, he says, whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. Then the long-awaited, momentous day dawned as the tradesman from Nazareth announces in words of staggering significance As Jesus stands before the people and says, the time has come. The kingdom of God is near. Repent and believe the good news. God's king had arrived. Heaven had punctured earth. Dreams became reality. And I think we forget the significance of that as those who live in the light of the New Testament, that the fact Jesus stood there and fulfilled everything that for generations, for thousands of years, they had longed for. And as we know, many expected this king to come and they thought he would break the Roman occupation of Israel. But Jesus promised something far, far more. Freedom from sin, death, and Satan. And he showed us what he was capable of and what he could do as he reversed what sin had done in his world. He was bringing life into the world that feared death. He was bringing hope into a world that was often hopeless. With every person he healed, with every word that he spoke, he proved his authenticity. With every storm that he stilled, with every sin that he forgave, he was making his credentials known. Only God could do this. He was the king and he was bringing in a new kingdom. And as he rides into Jerusalem on a donkey, as a humble, suffering, sovereign king, he rides on to his trial and he rides on to his death, a death on a cross, and above his head, how is he described? What was his crime? Above his head, 
Pilate writes in the statute books that his offence was Jesus Christ, King of the Jews. Even at the cross, he was king. And even on the cross, he promised to a dying thief, crucified next to him, entrance into his kingdom. Saying, today you will be with me in my paradise. Jesus reigned even from the cross. And three days later, he emerged from the bloodied battlefield as the victorious conqueror of Satan sin and death as he tore down the gates of hell and the enemy and rescued his people and began to make their way to that new place with a new king. And as we read on in the New Testament, we see that Jesus went to the place of honor at the Father's side. He continues to rule as God's anointed king, the Messiah, one who will judge all of humanity as God's perfect, just and righteous king. And throughout the rest of the New Testament, Jesus is the one who is described in kingly terms. Jesus, the carpenter from Nazareth, as they would have known in those days, was then worshipped as Lord. That means God's king. And King Jesus will come back, we read in Philippians 2. And one day every eye will see him. And every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. So when we pray, your kingdom come. We are calling in Jesus to rule in us and to rule over us. And in effect, we're asking two things that I want to leave with you this morning. The first is this. We are asking that God would break us. We pray that God would break us. You ever thought that when you prayed this prayer as a follower of the Lord Jesus, as a disciple of Christ, that you're asking God to come into your life and empty it up and tip it upside down and inside out and break you completely? When you pray, your kingdom come, we are in effect asking that God would do significant strategic work in us. When we acknowledge that Jesus is God's king and that there is someone who has ultimate authority over everything in this world, including life and death, we are laying everything before God. It's saying, Jesus, you're master of every corner of my mind. Jesus, you're king of every corner of my heart and my desires and my emotions and my job and my family and my work ethic and my business dealings and my internet viewing and my TV watching. You are king over everything. This prayer begins with us. The prayer is recorded for us in the middle of Jesus' famous Sermon on the Mount, where he teaches his followers how to live for him. It is full of guidance on how kingdom life with Jesus as king actually looks. It's a prayer and a teaching, not for the people out there who don't yet know Jesus. It's for people in here who do know Jesus. Jesus tackles relationships and anger. He reminds us that it's more blessed to be broken than have much. More blessed to be meek than feel you're in control. More blessed to be persecuted than passive. He tells us why we shouldn't worry and what we do with our eyes in terms of where we look and how we look. This is a lordship prayer. Dietrich Bonhoeffer was a German author and theologian and pastor who ministered during the rise of the Nazi party in Germany and continually called Hitler to account during the Second World War. He died at the hands of the Nazi regime just weeks before the end of the war. During his lifetime, he was guided by one set of principles. 
God was his king. Jesus is Lord. And Jesus' kingdom is not of this world. His kingdom is not dressed up in symbols and flags of an oppressive regime, but it grows imperceptibly and quietly and life-changingly. And Bonhoeffer wrote words that still bring a chill to my spine because I do not live up to these words. Because I wonder if I have really got this. Have you really got this? Bonhoeffer wrote, when Jesus calls us, he bids us come and die. When you become a Christian, says Bonhoeffer, you sign your own death sentence. Or as Jesus would say, you take up your cross and you follow him alone. For to me, to live in its entirety is Christ, said Paul. We live in a time when many Christians want to do things that are radical, noteworthy, significant. And that's very commendable. But at the same time, we have often forgotten that the normal, if I can put it that way, the ordinary Christian life is actually the most radical way of life on earth. It doesn't have to come with bangs and visions and prophecy and smoke and excitement. But it calls us to, when was the last time you prayed for your enemies? Or love someone who'd really hurt you? Or reply quietly to someone who shouted at you? Or forgiven as we have been forgiven and love our neighbours and be peacemakers, not troublemakers? Folks, that's radical. That's having Jesus as king of your life. Radical isn't doing things differently. It's living life with Christ as king. It's saying to God, show me my true place in the big scheme of things, O God. Made sincerely that we may lose our lives in him and that he would have his way completely in us. You know what this prayer is asking God? Simply that we would obey. The four-letter word that so often rankles with us. Because it means life is not about us, but life is all about him. And very briefly, we're also praying that God would break in. God would not just break us, but that God would break in. We get these amazing glimpses of what the kingdom of God can look like as we read the Gospels. Jesus heals the sick. Jesus calms the storm. Evil flees in his presence. Death is conquered. Sin is forgiven. Prisoners are set free. Lame men walk. Blind men see. Mute people talk. Jesus is beginning to reverse the curse that began in the Garden of Eden. Jesus is showing signs of what his ultimate kingdom will look like. In the synagogue for generations, the Jews prayed this prayer at the close of every service. Exalted and hallowed be his great name in the world which he created according to his will. May he let his kingdom rule in your lifetime and in your days and in the lifetime of the whole house of Israel speedily and soon. The Jews had long awaited a king and a coming kingdom. And now he had come. And on his arrival, he enabled them to see the kind of kingdom that he was bringing. He was making all things new. He didn't heal every sick person. He didn't raise every dead person. He didn't forgive every sinner. Why? Because the coming of the king signaled only the start of a new kingdom. Jesus was saying the best is yet to come. It's easy as Christians to think that we, by our good works, our social care, our famine relief, can bring God's kingdom to earth. We can't. That's not in our power. We can't make everyone and everything new. 
God is not building a paradise kingdom in this world. The kingdom, as Jesus himself said, is not of this world. Because Jesus' kingdom is the kingdom of heaven. I wonder if you read some of the amusing quotes from British tourists on their package holiday response forms. hope none of you wrote any of these. People who have gone abroad for a week in the sun, and some of them have responded in these ways. These are cracker. We had to hear these. One said, I think it should be explained in the brochure that the local store does not sell proper British biscuits like custard creams and ginger nuts. Second complaint. The beach was just far too sandy. Third complaint. We had to queue outside for an hour with no air conditioning. It was outside, wasn't it? And then this is the best. From someone who just returned from Spain. There are just far too many Spanish people. The receptionist was Spanish. The food was Spanish. Too many foreigners live abroad. Now these are Brits who are a sorry lot, but one thing for certain, the taste of home matched their citizenship, didn't it? The longing for custard creams and ginger nuts. Nothing would have pleased these tourists more than having a chippy on every corner. Their citizenship was seen in their desires and their expectations. Folks, as Christian people, we are citizens of an altogether different place. Christ's place, where there will be all that we ever needed and all that we ever dreamed of. It's a place of perfection. It's the new heavens and it's the new earth where all tears will be wiped away. Death will be no more. Sickness will cease. Sadness will be a thing of the past. The wheelchair bound will dance. The tone deaf will sing in harmony. Cancer will be crushed. Injustice will be over. Sin and sorrow will be shut out forever. When we pray, your kingdom come, we are praying, Lord Jesus, come soon. We want to be there with you. Come and save your people. Sort this mess out once and for all. If you were moving to a different country, emigrating, thousands of miles away to a distant land, and you knew that you had a new home, a new job, a people in a new place, what would you do in the here and now? Would you keep buying furniture for your house here? Would you get your kitchen painted here? Would you join the local gym or invest money in the northern bank? No. You'd be saving up and you'd be sorting out all that was to come. You'd be packaging your best stuff. You'd be ditching the rubbish you'd collected over the years. You'd be opening up a new account with a new currency as you prepared ahead for a new place. You'd begin saying goodbye and cutting those ties for your future lies somewhere else. It would be pointless, it would be wasteful to plow lots of money and time into the things that you're going to leave behind. You'd be doing all you could physically at this end to prepare for your final destination at the other. You'd be sussing out the shops, where to go, clubs to join, things to do, what to buy, where to put your heart would be into your new home. And that is what we do when we pray, your kingdom come. We're asking that God would work in us and bring his kingdom rule to bear in our lives as we prepare for his kingdom forever. It's throwing all we are and all we have into the kingdom that is to come. People might look at us and think we're crazy, but if they haven't caught the vision of the great king and the wonderful kingdom that lies ahead, then they won't ever get it. But if you see Jesus, 
in all his majestic glory as saviour and king. You'll be planning every day for all that is to come. Not investing in so many things in the here and now, but setting your sights on all that is to come, on that king and on his kingdom. As Jesus said, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. To pray that his kingdom would come in us in our world is not asking for social change or hunger to stop or wars to end, but in the middle of all that mess, see that because Christ has conquered, he is king. A king who's coming back and in whose final kingdom all that pain will pass. So let me finish by asking you this morning two questions. Are you in that kingdom? Is Jesus your supreme and your sovereign king? Do you want to see him soon to sort out this world and bring his kingdom to completion? Can you? Do you want to? Are you able to pray your kingdom come? Let's pray. Father, these are challenging words that cut to the heart of who we are as believers. Father, we've been reminded this morning that you are king and you have set Christ as the returning king. And yours is a wonderful new kingdom, something that is not of this world, something beyond our wildest dreams, something far better than we could ever imagine. And yet that is where our citizenship lies. We belong to that kingdom as your kingdom people. So, Father, we pray that you would set our hearts to that kingdom and serving Christ as king with the help of your spirit and those desires in our heart that set him above our own desires, our own whims. May we not be independent nation states that cut ourselves off from you, but may we be kingdom people, both now and forevermore. Amen.